church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Buenos dias, que tal? I'm your host, Joe McLean. Welcome back to Behold the Man. I am so excited to be back, and today we have an excellent guest for you, Dr. Scott Hahn. He is a phenomenal convert to the church, and he's got a lot to share. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Dr. Scott Hahn, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Joe. Just speaking with you in this interview is a career goal of mine. So I may just retire as soon as we hang up the phone today. I mean, You've what... got to set your goals much higher, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would say I've had a love affair with the Gospel of John that goes back uh, almost 30 years. Uh, I took a graduate course in, the, uh, in this gospel in seminary, and then I got to teach uh, a graduate seminar for seminarians at a Presbyterian seminary in Northern Virginia back in 83, and that, that course, perhaps more than anything else, began to show me the, uh, the Catholic faith uh, and, and how much it was a part of Jesus' intention, not just to do what he talked about in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church, but what he discusses with the disciples throughout the first half of John, chapters 1 to 12, often referred to as the Book of Signs, that's where Jesus performs his miracles, only John calls them signs, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to them as miracles. But John calls them signs because John wants to emphasize that they're not just miracles that ends in themselves, they're signs that point beyond themselves. And in the second half of the Gospel of John, what scholars typically refer to as the Book of Glory, that's chapters 13 to 21, that's where you have Jesus showing the disciples what those signs were pointing to when he promises to send them the paraclete when he returns to the Father. And then he promises that with the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says, greater works than these shall you do. Greater works than what? Well, you know, healing the man born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead, what greater works can, can there possibly be than those? But Jesus promised the paraclete, and the Spirit would in, empower them to do greater works, and the greater works end up becoming precisely what we call the sacraments. And so whenever you look carefully at John's Gospel and you study how it is that Jesus performed these signs, but would never, he would never entrust himself to people who were obsessed with signs. Because once we get fixated on miracles, it's sort of like seeing a sign to San Antonio and stopping there instead of going all the way to the city. The signs point beyond themselves. The miracles are pointing, they're sort of like external signs that point to the interior realities that the Spirit imparts whenever the apostles and their successors celebrate these sacred signs that Jesus gave them. Baptism, especially the Eucharist, along with holy orders, the priesthood of the New Covenant, which is wrapped up in what Jesus is doing there in the upper room, 
you know, with the washing of the feet, a ritual that was used to prepare candidates for priestly ordination. I mean, I don't want to spill all the beans here, but I tell you, this this gospel is so rich, and it's got so many Catholic uh, facets. It's like a diamond that you just want to hold and turn in your hand and see the radiance. A good friend of mine and my wife's who didn't want to see us leave the church gave us some of your materials, and that changed my life. And one of the materials that really was so powerful was the the semester that you taught the Gospel of John to, to your students that you put on tape set. And I oh, listened yeah. to that, and it was so deep. And real, you know what I really loved about that? was all the double entendres and, and how each each chapter really led in, set the stage for the next event in the gospel. It was so deep and so I tell you, rich. It, it, that gospel, I mean, if you could really, if you could find an honest-to-goodness, sincere atheist and sit down with them and read that gospel, you know, even if they didn't come away believing in God, they would say, that is a literary masterpiece. Mm. That is a gem. That is pure artistry. But of course, we know it's infinitely more because it isn't just the beloved disciples' handiwork, it's the Holy Spirit's work. And when you, when you combine the human and the divine, the literary sense, the historical truth, along with the theological meaning, you can see why down through the ages it's been referred to as the mystical gospel. It takes us right into the mystery in a way that, I mean, I love Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't get me wrong, but I mean, John is like dessert. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you know what, and have you noticed this? The Gospel of John seems to be under attack by more um, scholars than in any of the other Gospels. Do you notice that? Oh, of course, and that's really been true since the 1800s. I mean, you go back to the, uh, the rise of modernism, as it was called in the uh, late 19th century, and you will see that... Uh, Biblical scholars in the Protestant world and even Catholic biblical scholars were beginning to question and then deny and then undermine the historical reliability of the fourth gospel. One of the things that we hope to bring out in this conference is the work of Richard Baucom and uh, Craig Keener and others who are intent upon showing us purely scientific and historical grounds whereby critical judgments can be reached to say, this is eyewitness testimony. This is reliable history. Okay, granted, we have longer discourses by our Lord in this gospel than the other three, but that doesn't mean we write them off as embellishments. This is eyewitness testimony, and it can be received as such by non-Catholics, even by non-Christians who are going to be intellectually honest. But I want you to tell me now about the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. When did this get started? Why did you start it? We founded it seven years ago in 2002, and it was something that was on my mind for many years, and it was also on Kimberly's heart. We prayed about it, we talked about it, and then we just said, why, why do we keep talking about it? Let's just do it. And what it is, uh, is, a, is an apostolic work that is two-pronged. The one mission is this, uh, getting Catholics to read the Bible from the heart of the Church. And what we mean by that, of course, is the Eucharistic liturgy, the Mass. And it's not just getting people to read the Bible, you know, in connection to the Church as it's celebrating the Mass. It's getting them to see that the Bible is a liturgical book before it's anything else. It consists of 73 individual books, but they were canonized by bishops at the end of the 4th century, collected into an official list, precisely because these were the books that were being read in the liturgy. These are the books that illuminated the mysteries that we celebrate in every Mass. And so, ultimately, what we do, and we read in the Bible, is we're, re we're reading a book 
that was designed by the Holy Spirit for the Church. And so when we read it in the uh, seminary, when we read it in the university, when we read it in a Wednesday night Bible study, all of these things are good. I, I want to only encourage that always. But when we're reading Scripture in the Church, in the Mass, we're reading it the way it was intended to be. And when you actually sit down and study the Gospels and the Epistles and the Apocalypse, you'll discover that the liturgy is not only the context in which the Scriptures were designed to be read, the liturgy is the content of the Scriptures as well. And not until we begin to allow the Bible to reshape our thinking so that we recognize just how front and center worship is in general, how the covenant is, is, is forming us to be God's family, but we gather as God's family more to celebrate the liturgy, which is not what we do for God so much as what God the Father does for us as his family. You know, when you read the creation account through Western eyes, we tend to get preoccupied with all of these stale debates, you know, science, religion, evolution, six literal days, and that kind of thing. But if we, if we go back and look at the creation account through the eyes of the ancient Jewish writer and readers, we realize, okay, God could have created the world in one split second or taken six billion years, ten billion years. Instead, he, whatever he did, however long it took, he described it as being done in six days just in time to consecrate it and rest on the seventh day. What is that? It's the Sabbath. Mm. And what is the Sabbath? It's the day of worship. It's the day of rest. And how does God begin the work? By speaking the Word. The Word of God is what brought light out of the darkness and everything else into being out of nothing. So the Word of the Lord is what we heard in the liturgy back in the Old Testament, just as we had the liturgy of the Word in the New. And then you have a sacrifice always culminating that on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, just as we had the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist as the climax of the New Covenant worship. And so if you, if you study the creation account, you realize that it's a liturgical description of what God is doing. God is not just fashioning a world. He's constructing a cosmic temple. And that's what Jews saw in Genesis 1. It's a kind of liturgical cosmology. You see the cosmos as that place in which God's glory dwells. Well, that is, by definition, a temple. And so in Genesis 2, when you have the description of Adam in the garden, the terms are all borrowed from the high priest in the sanctuary ministering. Adam isn't just the first human, he's the high priest of humanity. And as you continue reading about the, the flood and Noah's ark, you know, he's taking a pair of clean animals, he's taking a pair of animals, all the animals, but he's commanded to take seven clean animals. Well, what is that? Well, you discover what it is as soon as they disembark, when the flood is over, he built an altar, he offered the clean animals as a sacrifice, it's liturgy that is the climax of the ark narrative as well. And the same thing is true for Abraham, and when you get to Exodus, the liturgy is so much more front and center. If we read the scriptures on its own terms, you know, slavery in Egypt is what we had to be saved from. The word for slavery in Hebrew is avodah. When God saved Israel from Egyptian slavery, avodah, he brought them out to Sinai, gave them the law, and then established the tabernacle, the altar, and the priesthood, so they could celebrate what? The liturgy. The word in Hebrew for liturgy is avodah. When you offer it to Pharaoh, it's degrading slavery. When you offer it to God, it is liberating power. It is what it means to be made the family of God. And as you move from the old to the new, you just don't, you know, you don't move from more liturgy to less. You move from symbolic liturgy to much more powerful liturgy in the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, which is the climax of Jesus' public ministry. And the only thing that really enabled Christians to see 
Calvary is a sacrifice. I mean, we take it for granted, Catholics and Protestants, that if you had been standing at Calvary in the first century and leaned over and just told a bystander, hey, isn't this a holy sacrifice? They would have looked at you and said, this is not a sacrifice. We're outside the walls of the city. There's no temple. There are no altars. There are no priests. There's no sacrifice. It's an execution. You know, you might think it's a martyrdom if you're a follower of this man, but this is no sacrifice. It was only by retracing Calvary back to the upper room and seeing what Jesus did while he was celebrating the old Passover, instituting the new, calling it the Eucharist, that action is what transformed a mere execution into the climax of the sacrifice of the new covenant. Mm. And so only when you read the Bible liturgically do you really get it. And when we established the St. Paul's seven, uh, Center seven years ago, that's what we long to do. You know, biblical literacy for Catholic laypeople, biblical fluency for our clergy, those are the two prongs. But ultimately, reading the Bible from the heart of the Church, because the Church's liturgy is the natural habitat for the Bible. You might even want to say the supernatural habitat. You know, your book, Letter and Spirit, really helped me to open my eyes to see where the Bible flourishes in the Mass. That's when God's Word comes alive. And also, when I began to look, because of Letter and Spirit, to see, well, how do we even get the bound book that we have before us today? We saw that the early church had to discern these books. And, and how, what yes. was the main criteria? It wasn't, well, okay, well, which ones do we inspire us the most? No, it was which ones were being proclaimed in the liturgy, especially in those churches that were founded by the apostles themselves. That's right. The two, the two criteria were apostolicity and liturgical usage, because the apostles, you know, Jesus never said, write this in remembrance of me, and he didn't write anything himself, but he did command them to baptize and to do this in remembrance of me, and to this of course, is the Holy Eucharist. And so when the apostles are writing, they're writing as the ministers of the New Covenant liturgy. And they're always wrapping their writings around what they know the believers to be doing in the breaking of the bread every Lord's Day. By the way, you just, I mean, you just put your finger on the book, Letter and Spirit, because when we founded the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology seven years ago, uh, I, I began working on Letter and Spirit as the manifesto. I, I, I was quite honestly startled by the response that people gave to a book I'd written three years earlier entitled The Lamb's Supper, The Mass is Heaven and Earth, where I just open up the book of Revelation in light of the Mass and open up the Mass in light of the, 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 the visions of John in the Apocalypse. And after three years or so, I was just amazed to see, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of ordinary Catholics getting it, understanding the book of Revelation more quickly and more easily than fundamentalists who've been spending 30, 40 years doing it, yeah. precisely because they'd grown up celebrating this mystery in every Sunday Mass. And that's when I wrote Letter and Spirit as the sequel. It was the manifesto for the vision of the St. Paul Center. And we also have a journal called Letter and Spirit, a journal of Catholic Biblical Theology, because it goes back to Paul writing Second Corinthians, and he talks about how the letter alone kills, the literal sense. But it's only when you move from the literal sense, which gives us the signs, to the spiritual meaning, which is the true spirit, that the scriptures become life-giving. And when does that happen, Paul says? When we're renewing our covenant. The new covenant is precisely what Jesus inaugurated when he instituted the Eucharist. And Paul is alluding to that right and left in that section. You know, my favorite book of yours, and you are absolutely my favorite author of all time, is A Father Who Keeps His Promises. Now, I, I loved all of your other books beyond telling, but a father who keeps his promises was truly life altering for me. I grew up in the Protestant uh, tradition of the church of Christ. 
And I can remember oh, wow. sitting in the Sunday school and thinking the Bible seems so disjointed and awkward to me. The old seems so separate from the new. I didn't get the sacrifices and the blood and the animals and all that stuff. And Jesus was just doing something new and clean and different. And it, I kept that mentality up until I read this book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises. And for the very first time, my whole world was different because I saw how beautiful and perfect the Bible was. It was a fluid love story from the father to his children. And now you have a new book that's even deeper and more um, breaking it open even further, this, uh, this issue of covenant theology. I want to share this more than anything else. I, I am an evangelist for a father who keeps his promises. Tell me about your new book. Well, my newest book is entitled Kinship by Covenant, a canonical approach to the fulfillment of God's saving promises. And actually, at the beginning of a father keeps his promises, uh, I, I referred to this dissertation of mine because this was my doctoral thesis defended back in 90, 95. While I was working on it back in 93, Kimberly and I sat down and wrote Rome's Sweet Home. That was like a, a three-week break from writing the dissertation. When I defended the thesis in 95, I was exhausted. I had a sabbatical, and, and, and when, I, when I had a semester off, that's when I wrote A Father Who Keeps His Promises, just to get it out of my system. It was like fire inside of me, the way Jeremiah describes fire in his bones. And so it was a great relief for me to simplify and to summarize my dissertation and A Father Keeps His Promises, and I dedicated it to my two oldest sons and their six high school buddies because we were sharing it in a, uh, weekly, uh, a weekly Bible study. But still, that dissertation was sort of like the main event. And so I, I got it accepted for publication by T.N.T. Clark. They were subsequently sold. I got it accepted for publication by Analecta Biblica in Rome, but I couldn't afford. You have to pay for them to publish your work. So finally, I was kind of shocked when the Anchor Bible Reference Library accepted this because it was like the most prestigious series in the world. And so they asked me to revise it, and then in the process, I rewrote it, and then I rewrote it again just to kind of make it a little easier to read because it isn't easy, breezy prose like Lamb Supper or even Letter and Spirit. It's real. It's 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 serious scholarship. It's, it's slow going, but for the highly motivated people who have gone through a lot of these other books and tapes, I would not discourage them from trying to tackle it. But uh, it really is the most academic of all my works, but it also represents sort of the foundation on which I've been building now for the last 20-plus years. But this, this material is so foundational. It really, seriously, it allowed me to, to open the Bible on my own and read and not pass up the minutest detail. I would find some detail that would seem strange to me or I would pass it up any other day of the week and go, you know what? I'm willing to bet that if I went back into the Old Testament and did some digging, I will find a link to this. And, this, and there will be some typology in the Old Testament that will make this come alive. And lo and behold... I did, every single time. This I know. I mean, I'll tell you, Joe, it takes one to know one. I mean, I didn't write this book in order to transform other people's lives so much as I wrote this because it had transformed my life studying the material. That was true for A Father Keeps His Promises. But even more, because the, the study that I, I did for years was so much deeper and more extensive than what I could simplify and summarize in that popular book, I just had to do this even if it did take 14 years after the date I defended it, you know, it, it, in some ways it was really worth it because what, what I've experienced in the process of studying, research, writing, and rewriting 
is this just life-transforming truth, and it's not just that way for me. I feel that way for my undergraduate students, my graduate students, and even a number of my colleagues with whom I've been teaching and studying for years. We've shared this experience that, wow, I mean, this is not just a bunch of truths that you squeeze into a lecture. I mean, this is stuff that just goes from the head straight to the heart, and wants to, it, it puts us on our knees before the Almighty God, who reveals himself to us through Christ as Abba Father. Mm. It gives you the skill sets. It really does to be confident that you can encounter anybody in this world, any Protestant or anybody else who, who seems like they know that scripture back and forth, but you have got something much deeper here. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your dedication and for your work and producing this material. This was absolutely life-changing, life-changing. Well, you're welcome. And I should also mention in conjunction with this book, Kinship by Covenant, Another book that I also published recently as the general editor, it's called The Catholic Bible Dictionary. Uh, Kinship by Covenant came out of Yale University Press, but The Catholic Bible Dictionary was just released last month from Doubleday. It's a thousand pages long. It's the first Catholic Bible Dictionary to get published in nearly 50 years. And they did the most beautiful binding. You just can't believe the cover. When you take off a dust jacket, the hard binding is just as beautiful. It's the, the adoration of the lamb, one of my favorite paintings. The layout and the design, I just had so much fun. But it was six years of hard labor with some colleagues and friends working on this thing. But uh, you can get this now. It's available from Amazon or your local Catholic bookstore. But a number of these articles would be very helpful for anybody going into the covenant and typology, the old and the new, especially the article on covenant in the Bible Dictionary. It's like the front door through which you pass into a bigger world. I also have a, a, an article in there called Biblical Criticism. You know, how is it that we relate to the kind of academic scholarship that Bible professors do in the universities when they're calling a lot of things into question? What is there a value, but what, what are the dangers? I covered that in the article on biblical criticism. We also have an article on interpretation of the Bible. One of my favorites is the article on kingdom, uh, as well as temple. Perhaps one of the strongest articles is this long one we did on sacrifice. And so when it comes to reading a father keeps his promises, letter and spirit, or kinship by covenant, or just studying the Bible for the rest of your lives, I, I designed the Bible dictionary, the Catholic Bible dictionary, to be that desktop tool that you turn to again and again you know, for introductions to the various books of the Bible, for some of the key ideas, you know, for just persons and places and things and, you know, all of the things that you need a dictionary for. I've got a copy of it, and you're right. It's beautiful. And what a resource. What a great tool to just have available to dive deep in your study instead of staying at that surface level, which I think uh, we're all kind of guilty of doing most times. It's easy to do. I mean, it really is. But at the same time, it's not what the Church does. Every Mass, you're always going to hear the old and the new. And it's never, it's never arbitrary. It's always, you know, the promises that we hear in the Old Testament readings are precisely what we're going to see Jesus fulfilling in the Gospel. And on Sundays, the Epistle is typically selected because it also deepens our understanding of how God's fatherly plan has advanced through the ages, and it's still being realized in our midst right here and now, in the mass where we find ourselves. I got to ask you a question. This has just been one of those questions I've always wanted to ask you. How do you manage your time that you can work on so many projects? You've got a big, beautiful family, a full life. How do you get this all done? I don't know, except for God's <laughs> grace. I mean, 
I, I, I have a couple friends who pester me like this, and they, you know, and all I can say is like it's like asking a centipede how he walks. You know, he's the last to know. I mean, it's just uh, it's the way you're wired. <laughs> so I've always been sort of uh, hyperactive, and you know, when you when you get to know my wife, you realize that she is the primary energy source in our family. I mean, she makes she works so hard sometimes it makes me look like I'm standing still. And, and you know, when we got married, the chaplain at our college just laughed. He said, "You guys deserve each other." We didn't feel that way. We, I didn't deserve her. But uh, it, it has really been 30 years of, of great partnership, and uh, it's so much fun. I, I must say, writing books is a lot easier in this decade after I made over 400 tapes of various lectures in the 90s because so many of those ended up getting transcribed and with some help that got edited. And so I have so much material from the last 25 years to draw from. And really all I want to do is not write new things so much as just kind of renew people's awareness and appreciation of the timeless truth that the church will always teach. And it just it's always going to be true, and it's always going to be life-changing. So we just wrapped up the year of St. Paul in Dallas with the St. Paul Center last August, and that yeah. was a phenomenal event, too. And I believe you also went on pilgrimage during the year of the priest with Steve Ray. But I want to know, how is the St. Paul Center going to celebrate the year of the priest? We have so many different things planned. I'll be honest, we're just coming off the year of St. Paul. We, you know, we had like three months' notice before the year of St. Paul began on June 28, 2008. And we just concluded that we, we literally quadrupled the number of conferences, retreats, workshops, publications in one year than we did in any two years combined. And, I mean, it was in a year of economic recession, so the challenges were almost Paul-like. I mean, when you read Paul, you realize how much he did with so little. And uh, that was the great adventure of this past year. But already I've begun working on a book called Many Are Called on rediscovering the, the power and beauty of the priesthood. And we have a number of conferences with priests and deacons and seminarians. We also have one scheduled on the very last day of the year. Uh, there will be more information on, the, uh, on, this, uh, on our website here in the next few months. But at St. Vincent Seminary, where I also teach in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, uh, we're going to have on June 19th, that's Saturday, a conference dedicated not to getting young men only, but I mean getting men, women, and children of all stripes and backgrounds together to celebrate the, the power and the beauty and the truth of the Catholic priesthood. When I meet a young man who tells me he feels no attraction to the priesthood, I do not conclude he's not called. I only conclude he hasn't understood the priesthood yet, because the priesthood is intrinsically desirable, attractive. It's a form of fatherhood that is divine and supernatural. Sure, there are sacrifices, big ones, but that's true for marriage as well. But I want to not only communicate to young men, but to Catholics of all ages and backgrounds, that what we have in the priesthood is really worth celebrating and passing this vision down to the next generation so that we're not going to have a shortage of priests, and we're certainly not going to have a shortage of good ones. I think this year has the potential of reinvigorating and really rediscovering this, this incredible gift that Christ has given us. You sound very optimistic about the priesthood in general and about our future in the Church, especially in this time of the year of the priest, are you? I am. I, I teach at two pontifical universities in Rome during the spring. I also have taught at two seminaries, one in Columbus, the Josephinum, and I'm still teaching. I, I, I was awarded the Pope Benedict the 16th Chair of Biblical Theology at St. Vincent's in Latrobe, which is one of the, it's in the top ten of the largest seminaries in the country. 
And so I see the young seminarians coming in, and some who aren't so young. You know, they've gone through a career, and they have a sense of calling, and they come at it now with a whole new appreciation for the sacrifices involved, but even more for the, uh, the power of the sacraments they, they'll get to administer. So to actually get to teach future priests to me is like the, uh, the highlight of every week. Hmm. Well, in a day and age where we have so much anxiety and apprehension just reading the headline news, it is good news to hear from uh, someone like yourself about the next generation of those who will shepherd us for our beloved Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Scott Hahn, thank you for taking the time today to speak with me and to share not only your passion and your gifts, but just share this opportunity to talk about what we love so much, and that's our Lord and His revealed truth. And, and I want to thank you, Joe, for your work here on Catholic Radio and just uh, and say you're welcome. It's been a joy and a pleasure for me to be with you. Uh, one last time, what is your website? What, are the, what websites do you prefer to send people to? Well, the most important one, I would say, is SalvationHistory.com. That's for the St. Paul Center, and you will find hundreds of pages of free Bible study resources for beginners, intermediate, advanced, anybody who really wants to grow in their faith through the Scripture, especially as it connects to the liturgy in the early Church Fathers. The other website is ScottHahn.com, and that gives a schedule. It gives all my uh, recent publications, all the past publications, articles and books and that kind of thing. And so I, I hope that people find that profitable as well. Dr. Scott Hahn, may God continue to bless you. Thank you so much, Joe. God bless you and our listeners, too. I want to say a special thank you to The Glorious State, a wonderful Catholic praise and worship band from Corpus Christi, Texas. They allowed me to play their Fading into the Light at the beginning of today's show. So thank you so much for that. For more information, please stop by my website at www.catholichack.com. That's all one word, catholichack.com. Well, you know, hey, I really enjoyed this, and I hope to see you again next week. Until then, I'm praying for you, so please pray for me. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground.